feel the fear in their heart, but they should at least have a sense of that fear in their mind. And that comes about through contemplating Hashem's greatness, even in a very, um, let's say, even very shallow way, but contemplating His greatness and recognizing that Hashem has um, disregarded everything else other than the Jewish people in general and yourself in particular. And the only thing that really, so to speak, matters to him is your submission to his authority and your service of him. Um, and that more particularly, Hashem is actually standing over you, gazing and examining you to see um, what is the quality of your service. And that reflection upon this should bring a person to um, serve Hashem with the kind of fear and dread, at least in their mind, as one who's standing in front of a king. And then he goes on to say that moreover, reflecting upon what you're doing when you're doing a mitzvah, you're drawing Hashem's presence into the world that should also fill you with a sense of, of gravity and seriousness. Um, and the author then goes on to say that even if a person doesn't actually feel any fear from this in their mind, at very least they're fulfilling the obligation of submission and service, of avayda. Because technically speaking, submission to God and fear of God are actually two separate mitzvahs. And as long as you're doing something with a, based on a conscious recognition of God's authority and your obligation towards him, you're at least fulfilling the aspect of service of God. And then actually, the altar, because the altar was nice, he says, even, and technically you're still feeling, fulfilling the mitzvah of fear because at least at the moment you're having this mindset, you, you are uncomfortable sinning. So technically there's some fear there. Um, and this is like the basic level uh, 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 um, that is expected of us. Do you ever feel submission without fear? Yes. Uh, if you would like, uh, submission without fear, um, fear has a sense of personal self-interest in it. And so it's more emotional. Submission is not like that. Um, we spoke at the end of yesterday's class on that chart that submission is not really, he doesn't tell you what that is. Um, a sense of like responsibility to a chef. Um, but then he goes, then he kind of, Verts back. Oh, sorry. And, and they explain, then explains why, based on a Zohar, why does everything need to be rooted in fear? And the Zohar has an analogy that just like you, you need to put a yoke on an ox before it can provide any benefit, so too a person first needs to accept the yoke of heaven, God's authority, for there to be any holiness. The idea being um, that the disconnect between human reality and divine reality is so great that anything that's rooted in our motivation is completely disconnected from Hashem. So that does not to say that the mitzvah that we actually do has no holiness, but that that holiness has no, no real connection to us, the doer of the mitzvah. Something the Rebbe actually elaborates in a sicha. That in order for the holiness of the mitzvah to really reach the person, the most basic link is that the mitzvah is being done out of submission to God's authority. And that you, you genuinely submit to his authority, not reluctantly, but, but fully. And that... Um, and it's that that creates a link, just like the purpose of a yoke is to harness the power of the ox to the plow or to the wagon, right? It's not about control, it's about creating that, that link, that bond. This totally just contradicts everything we just said in chapters, what we just said about different kinds of kavanah. Why? Because there we said, we didn't even say asiyah. That's right. We said a chassid, one said, and it was accepted. That, that had to do with the technical question of where the mitzvahs go if you only have that, and it's not discussed in Tanya. The necessity of this being, that's clear, explicit in Tanya. In the context of how it affects the elevation of the mitzvahs, because not really like love and fear, so that, Achas had said, and Rebbe Shab seemed to, 
to, to approve it. But the idea that that is, that is fundamental, in other words, that, that you're not plugged into God without this, that's very explicit in Tanya. It's explicit in the Zohar. For that matter, it's explicit in a Mishnah. First you accept the yoke of heaven, and then you accept the yoke of the commandments. Um, this is... Now, I, I will take a second out of time. We do have to cover 13 chapters, but this is an important point. The Rebbe does have a Seicha where he explicitly says this, and there's a discourse, a mimer from the Mitlar of the second Chabad Rebbe, where he also says this, although in more mystical terms. And I've not seen it said explicitly about Tanya, but this is my impression. You cannot start here. You cannot start with a submission to God. And the reason for that is, in order, to, in order to start with submission to God, you first have to have a positive view of God. So there's actually kind of, even though the first step of service of God is submitting to God's authority, uh, and like I said, that submission to God's authority comes because you recognize he's really entitled to your service. He's entitled to your loyalty. He's entitled to you setting your, your agenda aside for his sake because of his greatness and because of how much it counts, etc. That all presupposes that you more or less have a positive view of God and a connection to him to begin with. And if you think about this, and the Rebbe uses a model of education, education requires a positive environment prior to the process of education beginning. Right? There has to be a sense of warmth, a sense of love, a sense of acceptance, a sense of belonging. All those things need to be there for the actual process of education, which is remolding the person to begin, okay? Otherwise, it doesn't work. So there is a, if you want to use a different example, like the relationship of marriage begins only once you're married, um, but we understand the importance of dating, okay? Um, or if you want to put it in a, in a, in a context of Chumash, the Jewish people accept the Torah by saying, nice of initial, we accept Hashem's authority first and foremost. But that's after Moshe Rabbeinu told them the entire story of creation up through the Exodus. So there has to be a context, in other words. So one could make the observation that after a person has kind of absorbed a lot of what we've learned in the first 40 chapters of Tanya, then the altar comes and says, okay, okay, now I need you to be a little bit more mature and realize that if it's going to be all rooted in your desire for relationship with a God, it's not going to work. But it doesn't really work this way that you come and and impose that on a person. It just doesn't work. And the Rebbe says it's clearly in the Sicha, and it's elaborated in other places. Again, the Mitzvah Rebbe says it in mystical terminology. So, um, the, so the, the beginning of service is the willful submission to God's authority based on a recognition that God is entitled to that, based on his greatness and how much it depends on, his purpose depends on you, etc. But there is a kind of stage of spiritual development that's kind of pre-service of God, if you will. Does that make sense? It, it, it's an important thing because if that's messed up, it just doesn't work. Okay. You said that the first four chapters are possibly considered the context? They do provide context because they're very heavily love-focused. If you go through the first four chapters of time, you only see that fear almost gets up. It's almost treated like that, you know, the, 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 the middle child who's like, you know, you remember, oh, right, him also, right? But love tends to be the main focus. And then there's a, there's a shift here. So now, in the second half of the chapter, the, the altar of then says, okay, but you can't suffice with love alone. Or see, with, with fear alone, because you need both wings to bring the mitzvahs upward, and so there needs to be love. Okay? And then the Rebbe goes further. It's not even, an, the altar goes further. It's not even enough just to have the love of your desire to be close to Hashem. You also have to um, have 
um, a love which is really not about you, not about your closeness with Hashem. Um, he roots himself in, in the statement of our sages that you should never separate yourself from the community. And the idea is that you really should be, out of love for Hashem, you're trying to unite um, Hashem with the Shekhinah. I'm not going to go into the mysticism of what that means. But the point is that uniting Hashem with the Shekhinah is not about you becoming closer to Hashem. It's something that is for the benefit of Hashem and the Jewish people on a kind of transcendent level. And so the author says it's important for a person to at least bring some of that as a kind of a, a, a part of their mental discipline and focus is to realize that on some level, some part of my soul it loves Hashem and wants things to be good for Him and loves the Jewish people as a kind of spiritual entity and, and wants to unite them. And it's not really about me and my personal relationship with Hashem. That's a, that's a critical thing. Um, and then the altar adds one other thing, which is there's kind of a halfway point between my desire to be close to Hashem and which is love, which is really about my closeness, and a love of Hashem that I, I, because I love Hashem, I want Him to be united with the Shekhinah, which is for Hashem and for the Jewish people as a whole. There's an in-between thing, which is, goes back to this idea of redeeming your soul. That when you redeem your soul, if your soul is the child of Hashem, we spoke about this earlier, right? When your child comes home, it's not just the child is happy, you're also happy. And so that's something that's really for Hashem, but it's still kind of personal in you. And then that, so the altar says that you, you need to have all three of these elements of love. And again, there's a bit of an analysis. Why, what's missing in one, why you need the other. And that kind of sets um, the, basic, um, the basic setup that, that we need to have, start with fear. We also need to have love. The love can't be entirely about us, okay? And all of this is in order to bring two mitzvahs, right? And that love and that fear is brought about by some kind of his bonus, some kind of reflection, some kind of contemplation. Okay. Taking, building on that theme, the Alter Rebbe then moves in chapter 42, that an awareness of Hashem through contemplation, through reflection, being the key to bringing about fear, and specifically what he calls the lower fear, fear that brings to doing mitzvahs, um, the Alter Rebbe, um, elucidates uh, a section of the Talmud. The Talmud has the following question. One of the things that Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people is that Hashem doesn't ask anything of you except to fear Him. Now, the way that's phrased and implies that fearing Him is not such a big deal, right? Not a big deal. Just, just have fear of Hashem. Okay? And the Gemara asks, is fear such a small matter? And the Gemara's answer is that for Moshe it's a small matter. And the Alter asked that his question, but, but Moshe is not talking about the people. He's not talking about him, he's talking about the people. He's coming to the people and saying, Hashem's not asking you anything more than just to fear him. And so based on this, well, we have, the Alter Rebbe says that, that, that if we understand the role that Moshe plays, then we can understand this Gemara in light of what we've learned previously in the previous chapter about, the, about how we develop that basic level of fear of, of heaven. <coughs> in the service of a chef. So the idea is like this. There is a concept um, based on a Pasuk and a Gemara and the, the Zohar and Kabbalah that there are what are called the seven shepherds. Shepherds are there to provide nourishment for the sheep. These shepherds are seven souls whose job it is to nourish the souls of the Jewish people in different aspects of godliness. Okay? The most important of these shepherds is Moshe. 
I'm not going to go to who the other shepherds are. There's actually a bit of a dispute who the other ones are. And the reason is because Moshe is the one that makes sure that every godly soul has the quality of das. So if you go back, we learned in chapter 3, there's Chachma, there's Bina, and there's Das. And so Chachma was the capacity of the soul to be open and aware of Hashem, right? And Bina is the capacity of the soul to actually comprehend Hashem and Hashem makes sense and be integrated into the way you... Right? Okay. And what was Das? I remember what Das was. The awareness of Hashem. No, that's Chachma. Wasn't Das bringing it down? No. Nope. I feel very disappointed now. Connection? Connection. That, right? That you connect. Right? Now think about the things that you are connected to, you, your mind dwells on them obsessively. Right? So the ability for your mind to dwell obsessively over God. That's the das. And that's what makes God feel very, very real and significant to you. The fact that you can do that is actually not intrinsic to your soul. That is actually something that is being given to your soul from Moshe. There's spiritual mechanics of how that works, but most godly souls actually lack the quality of Das. Okay? There's some interesting technicalities. I'll, I'll explain it very, very simply. Every godly soul has the ability um, to 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 um, receive this capacity from Moshe. But the ability, but the actual ability to, um, as Altavis says in chapter 42, to reflect upon God in a way that your mind connects as deeply and as real as if it's something in your physical life, that is not intrinsic to the godly soul. That's something the godly soul is receiving from Moshe. Why? Because Moshe's soul is a, manifestation of the sphere of Das in the world of Atsilos, which basically means that Moshe's soul is the way that God projects his own self-knowledge into reality. And through that, your soul has the ability to relate to God as very real. Which means, by the way, that for Moshe... What? what? Yes. Which means that for Moshe, having enough of a sense of God as being real and important such that you're afraid of going against him is, is really such a small matter. And if you have an aspect of Moshe within yourself, that means getting yourself to the point where you have a fear of Hashem such that you will not transgress his will and you will be driven to fulfill his will, which is called the lower fear, is really, from that part of you, a small matter. Maybe that part of you is not so easy to access. But if you get in touch with that part of Moshe within you, okay, um, he then goes on to say that this is then enhanced when there's actually people who are like a, 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 actually are like the Moshe in their generation, and they actually enhance this both in their personage and in their teachings. Personage meaning that you're actually the actual person interacting with that person helps bring out the Das in, in the other Jews, and then their teachings are meant to bring out the Das in the other Jews. And the degree to which we get in touch with that part of ourselves the most, so to speak, within, then really having that contemplation that God is real and we really do owe it to him and he's really there and he's really watching us, it's not, it's not such a hard thing. And the Al-Tabra then goes on to say that this is, in a sense, what, what the sage Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai said, that 
um, the, the fear that should be expected is the way you fear another person. If you're gonna do something wrong and there's someone else watching you, do you feel comfortable doing it? So you should fear God as much as you, at least as much as you fear another person. And that's, on the human level, that's very difficult, but on the level of emotion within us, that's actually very basic. And the way you bring this out is first off reflecting that this is true within you. And the Alter quotes the Gemara, that, that if you say you struggled and you found, we believe you, but if you say you struggled and you didn't find that we don't believe you, so if you say, I can't get in touch with this part of myself, then it just means you didn't work hard enough. And then he goes on to say that, that then you really reflect upon how Hashem is watching you and he goes into kind of a philosophical discussion about how Hashem knows what you're doing. Um, and without going into all the technicalities, the, the way Hashem knows what you're doing is much more the same way you experience your own body. You don't observe yourself, right? But because you enliven your own body, you experience what happens to your body. And so since Hashem enlivens you, Hashem kind of knows from within what you're doing. So there's no possibility of hiding from him. And if you reflect on that, and then you add to that, um, that really Hashem is, is everywhere and everything you're seeing is, is enlivened by him. So in a certain sense, it's like, you know, everything you see is kind of a garment. Just like if you see somebody, you, can, you, don't, you don't see their soul, you don't even see their body, you see their garments, right? But, but you know that they're there, right? And then you know he adds, and you see how everything in creation is subservient to God. All of that, the more you reflect on that, really instills in a person a sense of, of God's um, centrality and helps a person sense, you know, I really have to set everything aside to make sure I'm in compliance with his will. And then he ends the chapter. And of course, you have to remember to consciously submit to his will as a separate thing, right? It's not enough stuff to be fear. We have to say that God is counting on me. I have responsibilities to God. And I'm going to meet those. And that's how chapter 42 goes, more or less. Um, by the way, chapter 42 is one of those practical chapters of Tanya, simply because it's, for the most part, all discussion of how to have, like, Yer Shemayim, fear of heaven, in a very basic level. And then he goes even further and says, now you can actually, in chapter 43, there's actually a kind of a higher level of this, where you contemplate God's greatness through your understanding of, of, of mysticism and how God has as many levels of God's revelation and the spheres and all of that. And then that gives you a genuine sense of awe of God. That now your devotion to his service is, is raised to a whole new level. But all of that is called the lower fear. Because the lower fear are things that motivate mitzvahs. And this is in contrast to the higher fear. The higher fear is not motivate your mitzvah observance. The higher fear actually comes as a result of proper mitzvah observance. And what the higher fear is, is when you, you become aware in a very, very visceral sense that Hashem is here. Now, for this we have to remember what we learned previously about Hashem. Hashem is the only thing that's absolutely real. If you had a sense that Hashem is right here, how would you feel about yourself? Not great. Not great, why? Because I'm not living up to him. Nope, nope. Because I don't really exist? No, nah, you're being too metaphysical. Close. So the Altarba has an analogy of this, not in Tanya, but in but in Chassidic uh, discourse. How would you feel being in the presence of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Now think about that for a minute. Not is it because you're failing to live up to Rabbi Shimon Zachai's expectations of you, or you just feel like relative to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, what are you? 
Mm-hmm. You're like a sophisticated chimpanzee. <laughs> That's it. And, like, and even if you're doing a really good job of it, you're still a... Because what you're living, what your reality is based on is just so empty and false. Well, okay, what happens if you were to actually have this awareness that the true being of Hashem is present in the very place where you exist? Then your reality, your reality all of a sudden seems you're completely insignificant, including, by the way, your service of Torah mitzvahs. Because this fear does not lead to Torah mitzvahs. This comes to the result. If, if Torah mitzvahs bring Hashem's presence if you actually got to experience that presence, what would happen to you? You would just feel like your existence is illegitimate. You would be embarrassed to even exist. And you couldn't even dwell on that because you would be like, embarrassed to even like, dwell on your own embarrassment. It would just be kind of like mind-numbing. It's a quite mystical experience. I've never experienced it, but it's a mystical experience. That's called the upper fear. Um, why would you want that? Nope. Because it's true. And if you don't value the truth, if truth is not a value in and of itself, then there is really nothing appealing about that. Because what you're doing is facing the truth and letting the truth dissolve away everything that isn't true about yourself, which is any significance you have as a created being. And that's a very profound mystical experience. And a person who's not pursuing the truth for its own sake, God for God's sake, which is really the whole idea of what fear is. It's not about my desires. So yeah, that's called the upper fear. It's quite profound. And not, by the way, the author was quite clear. He, mentioned, he makes reference to earlier places in Tanya, and he's quite clear, not every mind can handle it. Most people would have a complete mental breakdown, would not be able to survive that experience. The expression yeah. is, love kol not every mind can handle this. Yeah. Um, if Hashem like, did choose to create you and give you a, a physical life, like you would still be how is the truth that that's 100% significant? What's significant? About God. Whatever Hashem, Hashem And what tells Hashem, what rule does he have to operate to determine what is significant? And therefore the only place of significance is himself. And so what significance do you carry on your own? And even the idea that you're serving his intent, by the way, there's a footnote in a sikh about this. The sense that I am important because I'm fulfilling God's will is an important part of the lower fear. That dissolves away in the higher fear. And therefore, if you like buy into that and not as a psychological thing, as an ideological thing, you actually are pushing away the truth of God. I mean, I'm going to say something very <laughs> Hasidus, on the one hand, is very, very relatable. I mean, chapter 42 spoke about like not sinning because God is watching you, which is like basic, basic Judaism from a Hasidic perspective, but basic Judaism. And at the same time, Chassidus deals with like, the most lofty spiritual experiences a person could theoretically have. And yeah, upper fear is like, you know. Yeah, cause, because fear is ultimately about the importance lies with God, not with me. And if that's taken to an absolute sense, like, you kind of dissolve away. Then that's a psychological experience. And it doesn't lead to mitzvah observance. It follows perfection in mitzvah observance. And if you're not interested in the truth of God for its own sake, then it's not so appealing. It's the honest truth. I, mean, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can make it all nice and put a bow tie on and talk about how like, it is actually, when you, if you do experience it, it, is actually, it actually is experienced 
in a strange way both as psychologically positive and negative. It is both pleasurable and distressing simultaneously. But, but that's beside the point, because if you want it for the, what it feels like, then you're not capable of having it. That's called the upper fear. And the whole ultra basic point is like the upper fear, you have it, you don't have it. Like, that's not your job. Your job is the lower fear. Because your job is the fear that leads to mitzvah observance. Not the fear that follows from mitzvah observance. Yeah. Is the upper fear a permanent state or an experience someone has? Experience. Measure? It's an experience. All of it fear are experiences. The altar was quite clear in his introduction section, section of time, second section of time. Okay. Does anyone experience that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you want to hear an example of this? Yes. There was a, there was a chassid. I think the story, I'm going to butcher the story. The, the, the theme of the story is correct, but it's not... The, the, the details I have off. There's two versions of the story and I always get confused which one's right. Um, there's a chas named Zaman Meisha. Zaman Meisha was, was, a, was an extreme chassid. Um, there was a, a, a Rosh Yeshiva in Crown Heights whose name was Rabbi Friedman. Not related to the Manus Friedman, different. Yusel Friedman. And he once said that the, the Rebbeim never appointed Zaman Meisha to be a mashpia, to be a, 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 a guide of, of chassidus for people. People came eventually. And um, he said, says, I said, why? He said, a mishpi has to be a normal human being. <laughs> he was profound. He was a servant of God in the eyes of He wasn't normal. Like, you had to know how to take what to take and what not take what to not take. There, there are people like this. Like, there are some of the greatest chassidim. You have to know what to take and what not to take. What's good for them is actually good. An educator, you have to have a certain... Okay. So um, one time, the Rebbe Rashad, I think at a Febrega, started speaking to him. And he was standing somewhere and the Rebbe Shab started speaking to him. And afterwards the Chassidim asked, what did the Rebbe Shab, because the Rebbe Shab spoke it like in the way that I wrote it here. They asked, what, what, did, what, did, what did the Rebbe say? And Rizal Mesh is, I, I don't know. He said, what do you mean you don't know? The Rebbe Shab just spoke to you. He says, I didn't hear anything. He says, all that could go through my mind is when is the Rebbe going to take his holy eyes off my pig-like face? Whoa. Not because he had low self-esteem, by the way. Just his sense was there's so much like, like he just could not compute how this truth has anything to do with me. And it's just like he became mind numb. That's, that's what the Alter describes. That's the experience is like. It's, 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 it's gluing. You become glued to it. You become drawn into it. It's enchanting. And it's, it's at the same time, it's whatever. It's a, that's the, yeah. Lofty tzaddikim experience this as they take the three steps back and three steps forward. That's why they need to say, Hashem, open my mouth so I can talk, because they can't. And the deeper meaning is Hashem will speak stupid. Eh, it's a whole, it's like, anyway, this, but this is not If you don't get there, no problem. It's not your job. Like, if you get there, you get there. You don't get there, together. Your job is to have at least, you know, the fear that Hashem is important. He's watching me and doing what he says matters, whether it's awe or it's actual afraid or whatever. And that sense of submission that's mixed into that. That's, what's, that's what we have to work on. Which we can because we have that little Moshe part in ourselves. Yes? What's the connection between us and like People debate this. Seemingly, it seems that a Bainini may occasionally have experience of these at very, very auspicious times, very, you know, momentous things. As someone who's a very deep, profound person when they... Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, or you know, when they enter the uh, pri- private moment with a tzaddik or something like that, you know, things like that. But uh, as a general, it's like not a not a stable thing for me. There's a famous story of the Magid Mizrich. Someone criticized him why he doesn't accept him as a student. 
My Zush is very selective. And he said, you, you took Reb Zush of Anapoli. Zush of Anapoli was, uh, didn't have a reputation as being the greatest scholar in the world. I mean, he's probably great, he's greater than most scholars that we know of, but relative to. And so the Maggid said, you know, do you have any sense of the sense of year that he, the sense of fear of Hashem that he just walks around with? And this person says, what do you mean? He said, I'll give you a taste of just what he feels like just on a regular Wednesday afternoon. And the person soiled himself. Like he literally just could not, his mind broke down and like, like Rabzusha walked around and somehow could contain that experience and interact with people. People are not all created the same with their spiritual capacities. So could a Bainini theoretically have such an experience? Yeah, but like they're not living without on any day-to-day basis, for sure not. Good? Okay. Then the says, similarly to where we have this idea that there's a love which, so there's a fear which brings to mitzvahs and a fear which comes as a result of mitzvahs. We have a similar thing when it comes to love. We have something called Abbas Eilam. This is chapter... This is still chapter 43. Love a worldly love, and avarava, an abundant love, or avabatainugam, a pleasurable love. And if you're living with it, and the basic idea is that the avarava, this abundant love, or this avatugam, this pleasurable love, it differs from the avas oilam, the worldly love, in three ways. Number one, you must be in a state of complete fear. You must be perfect when it comes to fear before you can experience this avarava. It's a great and abundant, pleasurable love. In other words, be, this love is Hashem, what comes from actually being close to Hashem in a genuine way. And to be close to Hashem in a genuine way, there can't be any part of you which obstructs the truth of Hashem. So you first have to have the upper fear before you get to experience this great love. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, this love is something that you cannot, you do not, you do not produce through your own efforts. It is something that, that, comes upon you, okay? Um, and number three, it's characterized by delight rather than by desire. Mm-hmm. By a sense of being enchanted and subsumed with what you're experiencing rather than by a yearning and a passion. Whereas the worldly love is created based on you using your worldly experience as a grounding point to then come to a genuine appreciation of God's greatness. And that does not necessitate you having any fear. In fact, in theory, you could actually be devoid of fear. Ideally, one should first have fear and then have love, as we said, but there are some times where you first start with love and then have the fear. And this love is is something, it's a product of your own developing, your own comprehension of Hashem's greatness. And it's characterized by desire, by yearning. And, and what's so special about that love? It motivates mitzvahs. Whereas the love, the avarabba, it doesn't motivate mitzvahs, it comes after mitzvahs. It's kind of a reward. Okay? And that's how he ends chapter 43. So we have a fear, which is what our job, that's the lower fear motivates mitzvahs, and that's in contrast with the higher fear. We have a love which motivates mitzvahs called avas oilam, a worldly love, that we use the world as a, as, a, as, a, as a springboard to come to fathom Hashem's greatness. I'm not going to tell the details of that. And that, that we create within ourselves a desire to be closer to Him. That motivates mitzvahs. As opposed to Hashem reaching out and touching us because we are re- capable of receiving that. And that's after mitzvahs and after having the upper fear. And that's a truly profound mystical experience. Arguably this border, Avarabha, the, 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 that, 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 if you were to live with that on a day-to-day basis, you would be a tzaddik. I'm not saying... Abayni could never experience it. And 
that borders basically on some kind of like quasi-prophetic kind of an experience, like a, like a real mystical encounter with God. Like you, you, yeah, it's not it's not a normal thing most people have. Okay, but recognizing that Hashem is the greatest thing you could ever possibly have in your life, and therefore making the desire to be close to Him your greatest priority, that's something we can all work on. Okay, chapter forty-four. Moving on. In chapter 44, the Alter says that these two kinds of love, the Avas Oilam, the worldly love, and the Avarabba, this abundant love, they actually come in an infinite amount of degrees, each person according to their character. But there is a kind of love which every Jew has in common, because these are loves that are natural, we inherit them from our forefathers, and they actually have elements of both kinds. They have the element of it being intrinsically godly and coming from not something a product of your own work on the one hand, but being characterized by desire and that you can actually cultivate them yourself and they motivate mitzvahs on the other hand. And so these two types of love are kind of like, in a certain sense, um, superior than, than the loves that we had previously because they blend the advantages of both. Okay. Um, the first one is when you identify yourself as your soul, and your soul is enlivened by God. So a lack of Hashem in your life means that you are, well, when you feel less alive, you feel tired or sick, right? How do we feel when we're tired or sick? We're desperate to feel awake and healthy again, right? So if you f- identify yourself with your soul and you're not drawing Hashem's presence into your life through mitzvahs, how will you feel? With a kind of existential tiredness and sickness that can only be satiated through bringing Hashem's life through mitzvahs. And this is based on the this is based on the idea of the Zohar that that you're supposed to kind of love Hashem the way you love your own life. And again, this means very, very technically, when you are tired and when you are sick, you become obsessed with reclaiming that sense of being alive, being a sense of being awake. Sense of so why you know everyone's here has been tired before, yeah? And all you can think of is going to sleep so that you get back to yourself. Yeah, or sick, God forbid. But you, that comes from identifying yourself as your soul. And that's a natural thing, but you can kind of cultivate that, tap into that part of yourself. And then the deeper idea, there's a, there's a second type of love, which is also natural and innate. And this is that Hashem is our father. What's the name of that? The name of his love is based on a pasuk, nafshi avisicha belayla. My soul yearns for you at night. Just like a person is tired at night, they want their soul to come back. So we, we're relating to Hashem as kind of our true selves. So that kind of requires you, A, to identify yourself as your godly soul, and then kind of sense your, your, your sickness or tiredness because of the lack of, Hashem, of Hashem's true presence in the world, because Hashem's true presence only comes to Torah mitzvahs. And so that motivates Torah mitzvahs, but it's rooted in inherent godliness, so it kind of blends elements of both. Okay? Um, and... Then you have this other kind of love. Now, this kind of love is the love of Hashem because he's your father. Now, so we have to talk a little bit about fathers. Kabbalistically, what does it mean to love your father? Um, actually, for this is really fathers or mothers, with both parents. Gender thing is not really specific here. What does it mean to love your parents Kabbalistically? It means you would rather die, not just physically, but spiritually, to redeem your parents from captivity. Now, let's think about that. Why would that make any sense? Why would someone want to die, not just physically, but even spiritually, in order to redeem their parents from captivity? 
and I'm going to be clear, this is not something that's so manifest in actual humans. There's, a, there's an interesting explanation why that is. Oh. What is a child, conceptually? Child is a continuation of the parents. So let's think about it. Would you cut off a branch to save the tree? Would you cut off a branch just to, make, just to improve the tree, if it really would improve the tree? So if you felt that you were nothing other than a branch, an extension, a continuation, you were the secondary component of the primary component, which is the parent. If that's really how you saw yourself, then what would your, because love is about affiliation, about connection, but how would that connection manifest? Not as a desire to be close, but as a desire to forego yourself for their benefit. Even a small benefit on their part, even if it's a great expense on your part. Now, this love is the love that Moshe Rabbeinu experienced. It's called the love of the Rabbeinu, the love of Moshe, the love of the faithful shepherd. Um, and um, are we capable of experiencing this type of love? Absolutely not. But is there some part of the depths of our soul in which it's, that's true? Yeah. And so Altareva says, being honest with yourself that there's a part of you that feels that way can be very motivating to do mitzvahs. So you need to acknowledge that part of yourself and that needs to be motivating, but you will never actually feel that way about God because to feel that way about God is, is, to, is, is to rise to a level where you not even identify yourself as your godly soul. It's not even like we spoke earlier about Monsieur Snefesh where you desire to be subsumed. Your love is not about you at all. It's, it, your connection with Hashem is found in the fact that he is the primary and you're the secondary. He is the end and you are the means. And you see yourself as that way. Um, we don't generally think about our parents that way, right? No, you know why not? Because it's only partially true. On an existential level, it's true. But on a physical level, it is not true. You are an independent being. And therefore, your psyche is in war between those two things. This is what teenagehood is all about. And if you come through teenagehood intact, you find some way of integrating that on the one hand, I'm merely an extension of my ancestors, and therefore my life success can be measured in the degree to which I'm true to them and maintain them and live up to them. And at the same time, I'm my own individual human being. If you don't come through teenagehood um, properly, then those two things are not integrated and you have problems, like most of us. <laughs> um, but if you're only talking about the spiritual dimension, then you just have what the Zohar says. So the godly soul only doesn't have that problem. Now, both of these loves are, are, in a sense, much deeper and, more, and they're superior to the, 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 the love that's generated by um, contemplating Hashem's greatness. They're rooted in a kind of a deeper truth about God and ourselves on the one hand. But there is a downside to these loves, which is that they are not nearly as passionate as a love that's rooted in Hashem's greatness. And therefore, the altar says, you still need the kind of the avasalim, the worldly love, because we do need, because part of the purpose of creation is to know God, and the way we ultimately refine ourselves is by being passionate about God. And they, these loves are very good to bring a godly motivation to the mitzvahs, but they don't really fulfill the, the idea of knowing God and, and the way passion refines us. So it is, if you can make these loves passionate, great, and it's possible, but if not, then you have to kind of go back to the avasalim thing. And that's the end of chapter 44. Chapter 45, by the way, what's going to happen is these keep going to get like, the loves are going to get like kind of like more accessible and more accessible. Um, until, until the end, the last one is totally different.
The next love, chapter 45, he says, actually, there's a way that's even more like kind of direct. Because again, we need to be motivated to our mitzvahs. And this is the idea that compassion for your soul turns into love of God. Okay, there's a, there's a phenomena um, which in, in Kabbalistic language is Yaakov Ashapodas Avraham, Yaakov redeemed Avraham, which is a kind of taking a phrase from Pasukah, slightly out of context. Yaakov refers to compassion, Avraham refers to love. And so compassion has a way of redeeming or freeing an experience of love. You can see this, by the way, psychologically. Um, if you show compassion for somebody on an ongoing basis, you will start to develop feelings of love and attachment for them. Just to be clear, compassion, I think we spoke about this, compassion is that you feel bad for the negative experience they're in and want to help them. It's not about wanting to be close to them, but enough compassion eventually elicits feelings of attachment and desire to be close. There's a good Rebbe story about this, but maybe I'll say it at the end of class. Um, so the idea is you should have compassion for your soul. Because what's the state of your soul? So? Exile. And not just you should have compassion, right? If you have compassion for someone and you realize how bad it is, you want others to help, right? You should ask God to have compassion. In fact, if you think about it deeply, who has a greater sense of how much of a tragedy the soul is experiencing? You or God? So you try to have compassion for your soul. Then you ask God to have compassion for your soul. And this obsession with compassion for the soul awakens a strong feeling of attachment and desire. Um... And so that motivates, that, 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 that brings a kind of a, a passion and an urgency to doing mitzvahs. You want to be close to your soul. You want the soul to be close to God. And in doing that, you've, you've cultivated a kind of a desire, which is, the, which is the core element of the love that motivates mitzvahs, through using compassion. Now, what's cool about this type of love, the lower your spiritual state, the easier it is to get love, right? And that theme is going to be developed even more when we talk about the next type of love. In other words, the other types of love actually have the reverse thing, right? You need to be somewhat spiritually sophisticated and deep to develop avasalable worldly love, that your experience of the world translates into desire for God. And you also need to be spiritually deep and, 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 and refined to see yourself as your soul, and certainly to be able to tell yourself with any degree of authenticity there's a part of you that sees yourself as just the child of God. Not in the sense that God loves you, but in the sense that, that your, your true identity is, is his completion, his well-being, whatever, how, his happiness, if you want to put it. But here, it's like, no, okay, there's a soul. And I do have to identify with the soul. I do have to be able to see the soul. I have to have that kind of sensitivity. But my own spiritual coarseness, right, actually makes compassion, having compassion a little bit easier. So this is a little bit more attainable. It doesn't have necessarily all the advantage of the previous thing, but again, at least that we develop some kind of desire to motivate our mitzvahs. Good? Okay. There's some interesting Kabbalistic technicalities in chapter 45 about how this works, which I'm going to skip over. Um, but he, he reads kind of into the whole story of Yaakov encountering Rachel and um, crying and kissing her and how that plays out in these details. Okay, chapter 46. Chapter 46 begins a four-chapter series about the easiest type of love to achieve. In fact, the altar says, ma'od, ma'od. Very, very accessible. 
and this is based on a verse in, um, I believe it's Mishle. Kemayim uponim uponim, kenleva adam ela adam, like water reflects the place, so too should, uh, so too should the heart of man reflect man. Now, the Al-Drebbe interprets this not in its straightforward meaning. The straightforward meaning is that's instructive. You're supposed to treat, reflect people back. That's, that's the way it's supposed to be. The way the Al-Drebbe explains is there's a natural tendency that we feel about others the way that they feel about us. So what does that mean? If somebody loves you and you don't try to do anything to stop it, what will happen? You will feel love back towards them. So instead of trying to come up with reasons why you should love Hashem, you know what you could do instead? Just reflect about how much Hashem loves you. And the more it's clear to you, the more you can just let it sink in that Hashem loves you, you will naturally love him back without even trying. In fact, you would have to stop yourself from loving him back, which you could do because you have free will. Okay, so this is a totally different approach. So now what we need to do is we need to elaborate on how much Hashem loves you, and that's basically what most of the chapter is about, is explaining... It's pretty straightforward. Right, but here's the thing. Can you, like, exp- I'm going to actually put this as a chance. I don't have time to do this. This is, this is, this is a, little, um, a little bit fun. Can you make a convincing argument that Hashem loves you? Just like a convincing argument. Now, you can use whatever premises you want. I don't care. But just start with any premises. Just that, that those premises should lead to the conclusion that God loves you. Don't start with the premise God clearly loves me. Nobody can do it? So that, that just means that he finds you useful. I find the toilet useful. I don't love the toilet. <laughs> what? Or maybe God is just, you know, God is, is, is generous, right? Like, no reason not to keep you alive, right? It doesn't cost him anything. Why not? That doesn't mean love, right? Again, love is something very different. Love is a desire to be close to, an attachment with, an identification with, right? That's love. It's weird to think of God actually loving, not, in a benev- not love as a code name for like benevolence, but like actual love. What, what, God loving anything is not so obvious. How, how would you know if somebody loves you at all? Like, what's a good test? Not committed to you not cares about your well-being, like actually feels a sense of desire to be with you, identification with you, attachment to you, right? That, that whole kind of thing. Love. Person who wants to spend time with you. Person who wants to spend time with you. How do we know they want to spend time with you, though? Maybe, maybe, maybe they just want to spend time with people like you. You're funny. So that's why they hang out with you, because they like humor. That's often what people do, and that is a bad way to do it. A, because most love is not. First off, first off, experiences of love are not unconditional. Which means even if you talk about something like parents or chance, if you're rude to your parents enough, or you're rude to your children once they're adults enough, you know what's going to happen? They'll just bite the bullet, suppress whatever feelings of attachment, move on in their life. So that's like a bad way to do it, because you could end up destroying relationship. 
Number two, it really just shows commitment more than anything else, which is, which is not the same thing as love. Maybe you can just ask to do a lot of things, do a lot of things. Yeah, can you, you just, could. Can you describe the ones as like when they start enjoying things that you enjoy? Close. When they enjoy things that they really wouldn't enjoy other than the fact that they involve you. That's how you would categorize love? That's how you, no, that's, that's, that, that's something that is unique to love, doesn't exist. Out. Those, there are many things that love generates, but they're all can be generated on things, right? Being nice to people can generate by many things other than love, right? Um, this is only generated by love, right? Like, how do you know that a father loves his children? Sits down he sits down and plays with them and has a good time. Like, that's how you know. Because generally speaking, adult men do not like playing with toddlers. It just, it, it tends to be a thing. There's very few outside of like Haredi circles, men who are kindergarten teachers because they would just find it like emotionally depleting. It just <laughs> tends to be the case. So the fact that like maybe Hashem gave us these shows. Right. So what the Altarabit develops is this idea. The idea, okay, the idea that Hashem wants to be with you. And again, wants to be with you despite the fact that you're very lowly, right? So he says, imagine you have this great king and the great king, right, um, takes somebody who's like just the most, you know, poorest excuse for a human being and goes out of the way to go find them and clean them up and bring them to them and, and, and wants to spend time with them. How would that person feel? There's an important point. When they have a sense that they're not, this is not like, there's no ulterior motives not being, just, just that. How would they feel? They would feel an incredible sense of desire and a want to be with them and a want to, 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 to make them happy, right? It just happens automatically. Okay. Um, what did Hashem do when he took the Jewish people out of Egypt? That's what he did, right? Okay. What's a mitzvah? Trying to connecting to Hashem, right? A mitzvah. So we say before mitzvah is a sher kedushan of a mitzvah yisof, okay? And the Alter connects the idea to kedushin. Um, in mm-hmm. Jewish marriage, there's a thing called kedushin. I'm sure you've heard of kedushin. Mm-hmm. What happens in kedushin? Not the actual physical like event. Like what happens conceptually? One person is, de- is dedicated to another person. Dedicated is a nice word. Someone buys something. No, buying is not the right word. You could use the word acquiring, and I'll grant you that, but buying is not the right word. So, you could use a few different words and you get it right. Um, Consecrated is probably the best if you had to use a single word. That's actually why it's called pollution. What the idea is, is one person becomes taken away from the general population and becomes part of another person's life. Okay, what does Hashem do when he gives us the mitzvahs at Har Sinai? He's saying, you, you're, you're not part of this world thing anymore. You're part of my space, right? I'm taking you out of the creation space and I'm bringing you being part of the God-creator space. Mm-hmm. Right? So he went and took us out of the spiritual garbage heap and says, I want to be with you and I'm going to actually take you out of the, the structure of regular reality and we're going to have our own thing. Okay. And then the altar in chapter 47 develops this idea that this not just something happened in the past, this happens all the time. Right? Yeah, moving on to the next chapter. The, in chapter 47, that, that, that 
this happened. This happened all the time. The idea is that you're supposed to kind of you're, we're supposed to see ourselves when we leave Egypt every day. That we accept upon ourselves the absolute truth of Hashem, right? And we do mitzvahs, right? This this despite and it doesn't matter how spiritually insensitive you are, right? You don't be honest. You don't experience the holiness of Shabbos, but that doesn't prevent Hashem from being with you, right? You might be like an animal doesn't get it at all, but Hashem still wants to be with you. And this is true about every Jew. Right? This is why, by the way, violating mitzvahs is so severe. Like, well, I don't experience Shabbos. What's so bad if I, like, you know, don't keep the laws of Muksor? I eat a little chametz on Pesach. The idea is like, this sanctity of Hashem being with you is, is it, it, the fact you don't, you, don't, you don't experience it doesn't change that fact. And the more you realize that that's something that is how Hashem feels about you every day, it makes that available to you every day, and you have nothing other to do other than then want to take it, the more that... that Realizing that's how Hashem feels about you naturally elicits this response wanting to embrace that back. Now, well, you could be a tzaddik and experience it, and then ultimately, even tzaddikim don't experience it truly and fully because ultimately it's godly. Hashem took this idea of being together with us, He never, he never took the idea that you're going to have this, the, the, you're going to be able to have the kind of shared experience. Of it. What's the point of being, being together, together with someone if they don't know about it? Again, it's like serves you, not them. So, remember how I said that like selfishness ruins everything? Okay. What's the point about sitting? I'm just gonna give you some like human examples. What's the point of sitting in a hospital room next to somebody who's deathly ill and unconscious? What's the point of walking into your children's room late at night and giving them a kiss while they're deeply asleep? What's, um, what's the point of updating your loved one when you're out at war, not even knowing if the letter's ever going to reach them? Love is not rational. And love is not vindicated by the experience. Like, that's when a person doesn't love. That's when a person turns love into like a kind of hedonism. Love is about connecting. So when you feel valued and cherished in someone else's life, the natural thing is you, you really want to be part of their life and you want them to be part of your life and you want that. And in whatever way you can hold on to it, you're going to. And you're going to do it irrationally. That's what love is. And if that's not what's happening, then it's hedonism. It's not love. And often we, we conflate the two. That's true, but those are not the same things. Like, you know... Uh, uh, if you're, if your kid is having a bad day, how do you know you love your kid? You don't just care for your kid. Caring for your kid, your kid is having a bad day, you're having a hard time. You want to make sure that whatever's the problem, whatever the issue is, it gets addressed appropriately, right? This doesn't really, right? it, 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 there's a certain pragmatism around care. Right? Care is, is, is justified by, hopefully it leads to some kind of an outcome Right? Or at least that they'll be psychologically healthy. They'll be able to go through this experience without being totally distraught or whatever. Right? Something like that. Which I'm not, you know, this is, probably as parents, care is more important than love. But I know you love the child. You become, you, you also become distraught. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it slightly. When something allows you to not be distraught, you don't want it. You don't want, you don't want, because at that moment, 
the child's in their world and you're... And, and again, you, you're, you, you care and you've taken everything, but like, there's a level of like, the, the togetherness is undone. The child may not know, right? The child might be rebellious teenager who doesn't experience any of this stuff. It doesn't matter, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, like, so the, the love, when you feel that you're this cherished by Hashem, irrespective of how like, like disgusting we are on a spiritual level as people, not that was quite clear about that, that just makes it clear how much, how cherished we are and that he gives us mitzvahs, right? Sorry, it seems like it's something more you have to understand and work towards to feel that's something you could feel. That, one second. So this goes back to the idea that we have a mind, that, right? We have a mind that's able to understand that and to the degree to which we understand that in a way that it's real, the love will follow automatically. The point is you don't have to actually do anything to elicit the love. You just have to really absorb that he loves you. Now, that's work. No one's saying that's not work. And the more seemingly unlovable you are, the more clear it is that he actually loves you as you rather than just your spiritual whatever because you're not that spiritual. Okay. The you that actually was loving is the godly soul. Uh, the godly soul. But the godly soul clothed in the animal soul and the body. Proof being that Hashem consecrates us with physical mitzvahs, not with some spiritual experience, right? Not with some spiritual whatever, right? Okay. Now, Chapters 48 and 49. So the idea, is, the idea is that 47 is the excess. Chapters 48 and 49 then become extremely philosophical and develop this idea because, because basically you have to explain how, what I've said in, in other terms, you kind of implied that God is undergoing some kind of a change to be close to us. And that's philosophically hard to understand because you have to explain this. And this is where the algebra starts in these two chapters, which I'm going to group together, is where the altar starts introducing this idea of that Hashem surrounds the world and He fills the world. The idea that in one hand, sense Hashem is present um, fully as Himself in a way that we can't experience. And on the other hand, Hashem limits Himself in a way that we can, be, we can experience. Um, and He uses this idea as to kind of give a philosophical explanation how it actually makes sense that Hashem is kind of overcoming Himself. He quotes the Gemara love pushes past the flesh, that Hashem kind of overcomes the infinite gap between him and us out of his love. And that's really what the idea of the exodus, both the, the historical exodus and the personal exodus every day, and the giving mitzvahs really is, which therefore show the love. It's very, it, it, these two chapters are kind of reminiscent in a way, um, very much of chapters 20 and 21, where we became very philosophical. Um, and you can kind of go into that. I'm not going to go into that because if I do that, we're not going to get to the, the end of time. Okay. Chapter 50. Chapter 50 says, all the loves that we've discussed up until now, so 43, up through 49. Okay. And remember, 40, 46 through 49 is really one theme. 46 is about the idea that loving him because, as natural response to him loving us, 47 is that that's something that takes place in the personal like the of Exodus every day. And then you move on to the philosophical explanation of how, what does this really mean that God is overcoming himself to be with us because he wants to be with us. How do we make sense of that in a rigorous and coherent manner? But all these loves, they're all, he says, they're, they're, they're all like silver. And there's a love which is like gold. Now, what makes gold better than silver? 
Nope. Although that's true. So how many loves in total? Five. It depends how you count them. We had Ava, the ones that I said explicitly. We had Avas Oilam, the worldly love. Avaraba, the abundant, delightful love. Nafshe Vesicha, I desire my, my soul desires you at night. Kiato Avinu, you're my father. Um, um, Yaakov, Asher Padas Avram, the compassion. Kamayim upon him, upon him, like love. So that would be six. One could read into that. There's subdivisions here as well, but that's. And all of these share the quality that they all motivate mitzvahs, right? Um, why is gold better than silver? Why is better or why is more expensive? No, why it's better. It's more rare. It's more expensive. It's so funny. Sometimes people like... They, they, they overcomplicate what shouldn't be so complicated. Ask yourself a very simple question. How would you feel if you got a gift of silver jewelry as opposed to gold jewelry? Everything's equal, but the person I'm going to give you a piece of jewelry made of silver instead of a piece of jewelry made of gold. How would you feel? They could have gotten you gold, Julie, but they got you silver. Just between those two, like not, I'd rather have that than nothing. Right? That's a very mature way of dealing with things. <laughs> what? There would be some disappointment, I would assume, yes? Why? Because you're saying I could have given you something with higher value. That's right. Gold, gold is a Gold is something we as human beings use and relate to as something having a kind of holds a value, a preciousness. Now, we can then analyze it. Is that because of how it looks? Is that because of how rare it is? I don't know. And it really doesn't matter. On a very basic level, there is something yakar. There is something very precious. Not in terms of like, not in terms of economic value. Not in terms of the cost. Right? And the way you can see this, if the person gave you the equivalent amount of silver jewelry in terms of the amount of money, they spent $300 on silver jewelry, there's still something like... Okay. And so the idea that Alter is getting it is there's a qualitative superiority that can't be reduced to something really quantitative. And that's reflected in this idea that, that it, it, you relate to it differently. Okay. Um, and so this love is the most precious love. It's the most valuable love. Okay? Now, an interesting thing. Um, what's the Hebrew word for money? Kesef. Why? Silver. Why? Money. Why is it not gold? Mm-hmm. It's not so functional. Because gold is, has this kind of value. People don't part with it so well. It carries too much value, right? It, it's not exactly the same, but try, try living your life by everything you buy spending using using $100 bills like it doesn't work so well because you like don't want to like make you want to like buy something for a dollar and you give them $100 bills. Like, I don't want to deal with this right so there's an idea and this is discussed in the Gemara that, that silver it's not so valuable but it's actually quite practical you can get stuff done with it it's a good medium of exchange which is why the word kesef both means silver and currency 
gold is valuable and there's that preciousness, but that actually, in a certain sense, makes it less functional. Okay. By the way, just an interesting, like, similar idea of Alter uses gold. Um, you've heard of diamonds? Yeah, diamonds. Yeah, diamonds you've heard of. You know that diamonds, um, at least in modern society, are really not that rare relative to other... That's right. They have to create... The, and so a combination of holding them back and advertising creates this kind of social consciousness that a diamond has this kind of it's a holder of preciousness. And once that happens, everyone relates to it differently, right? Okay. It's not exactly the same, but it's a similar idea. So this love is like gold. It's not so valuable, which means like this. Sorry, it's not so useful, which means this love is not going to lead to mitzvah observance. But it's the, most, it's the love that's most valuable in God's eyes. And this is this love we're going to learn about in chapter 50. It does lead to mitzvah observance, but in an indirect manner. This love is only time in Tanya where the Alter Rebbe has a hard time explaining himself. In fact, uh, I, I could... I could this I'm going to actually read this the author of his words are we've learned enough Tanya to know that the author of he says what he wants to say right and he's, he says like this about this love okay English is not as good as the Hebrew. I'm gonna, okay. He says like this. He says, He says like the Levites was to raise their voice in a melody and thanksgiving with song and music, with tunefulness and harmony. It's a lot of synonyms, right? In a manner of, of running forward and falling back which is like an intense love, like a flame that flashes out of lightning. And it is impossible to elucidate this manner clearly in writing. Yet any person, he uses the word ish nilvav. They say warm-hearted person. Uh, the best translation for ish nilvav is a heartsika person, um, which I don't know of a good English translation for this, but it's, it's a person who like, their emotional life is very deep and rich. And who is a wise person gifted with understanding, who binds their mind deeply in the contemplation of God, will discover the goodness and light which are treasured up in the rational soul. Each person, according to their capacity, there are those who are affected this way, there'll be those who are affected that way. In other words, what's this kind of love? Indescribable. It's indescribable. But what does it come from? It comes from contemplating Hashem's greatness. And it comes that you are so enchanted. You are so smitten with his greatness. This is not the natural love that we spoke about in chapter 19. You are so smitten with his greatness. You are so enchanted by his grandeur that you want nothing else. And I I will use this term because I think it captures it. You want to elope with God. You know what it means to elope? You find someone, you're smitten with them, you fall in love with them, and what do you want to do? Just marry them. Run away from the life you've had and be with them. And what's going to be? How's it going to work out? I don't care. You fall in love with God because you know God, not because of the world. And this actually causes, Alter Bailey says, this causes you to feel a rejection for the world. You don't want to do mitzvahs. 
Because mitzvahs are about bringing God where? Into the world. You want to run away with God. But what's powerful about this love is this is the love where it's really about you have gotten to know Hashem in such a real way that you've fallen in love with Him for who He is on His terms. You're not trying to bring Him into your life at all. You're trying to leave your life behind to be with Him. It's this heavily romantic and is very dangerous and not recommended unless there is a strong commitment to God in place, a strong level of submission to God in place. Because as the altar goes on to say, the only way this can be channeled into mitzvahs is when you step back from the love, like Rabbi Kiva, and you say, as much as I want to be with God, what's more important is to follow God's will. And in that sense, I will be with him more than I could ever be. And there's a tension here. This love, it's the most purifying of the, it's, it's the love that purifies a person spiritually more than any other love. It's a love that's rooted in the greatest awareness of God than any other love. It's the love that's the most intense and the most passionate, the most transformative. It also doesn't lead you to do mitzvahs. It leads you, if left on its own, it literally, it's destructive. Right? And this is, this is it, it, so often we talk about, oh, you have, to, you heard this idea, like you, you have to, on the one hand, you want to be close to Hashem, and then you have to do mitzvahs. Like, that tension really doesn't exist in almost any love. Because all, all the other loves are based on the fact that you feel a certain kind of affinity with Hashem. You want to be close to Him. The way you become close to Him in the reality of our lives is through mitzvahs. And so the love leads to mitzvah observance. It's root here. And even the reason you love Hashem is because you find something about Him that resonates with you, that speaks to you based on your soul, based whatever it is. Here, it's, it's something else. You... you, you, you Hashem is, Hashem is the alluring stranger that you want to run away with and there's just like nothing that you can't and it's consuming and it's passionate it's intense and like you don't want to be part of the world anymore and not because it's your innate nature to return to God because that's nothing to do with God's greatness it has to do with you and your innate nature and this is the love that is as, as love is the most precious kind of love but as a motivator to mitzvahs it's the most useless the only way this becomes a motivator to mitzvahs if when you put in the framework of I have to, I have to step away from my passions and submit to Hashem. Okay. I have to finish Tanya. I have to Okay. 51 through 53 is a very complex philosophical discussion centered around the following issue. Remember we had the whole thing that you bring Hashem into the world through mitzvahs because mitzvahs are like the oil. The problem is that in Kabbalah, oil represents chachma, wisdom, not physical mitzvahs. And so the altar in the last few chapters begins a long philosophical explanation of what Shekhinah is, how it relates to godliness in general, and understanding the relationship between Shekhinah, chachma, and physical mitzvahs, so you can kind of understand that that the physical mitzvahs both are drawing on the chachma aspect of oil and also this element of it, self-annihilation, like the burning that brings the shechin in. It's, it's actually, like I said, the, the hardest three chapters of time um, because it's, it's very Kabbalistic. Um, so I'm not gonna go into them in detail because we're technically over time. So I almost did it, but the passion of thing is very cool. Yes. The Rebbe's story is that there was a person who was, I, I think he was like, 
traditional from, you know, that kind of thing. You think in like the 60s or 70s. He, would, he was close to Chabad, donated money, you know, that kind of person. And he was very ill. A family man, a businessman, that kind of thing. He was very ill and he had to be hospitalized. And it was an extended hospitalization. And um, he had a regular nurse. And eventually the nurse and him started to develop a relationship. And they, and, um, no, he was definitely, f- like, from, yeah, the Tunisian story, but not, uh, modernish from, whatever. So, um, and, um, it got to the point that, that, that he was, that they made a decision that they were going to run away together, going to work. Like, that's how warped the situation got. Anyway, um, that Friday... Um, one of the nurses, one of the other nurses says that he has a phone call. And he's like, and you have to take the phone call. Like, I don't want to take it. What's the phone call? He says, there's this rabbi he's driving me crazy. <laughs> and Rabbi Chodakov, the rabbi's secretary, was on the line. And, uh, and Rabbi Chodakov was a person like, it was no nonsense. Like, if, if something was supposed to get done, who's going to get it done? It doesn't matter what. And so Rabbi Chodakov tells him, the rabbi says, you need to leave the hospital and go home for Shabbos. He says, but I'm going to get discharged on Sunday and it's okay. And he says, no. The Rebbe says you're going home now. He says, but they didn't officially release me. Like, like. <laughs> and Rebbe Chadakov says, no nonsense. And Rebbe Chadakov says, you are going to leave the hospital and go home for Shabbos now. Anyway, Rebbe Chadakov um, got his way. <laughs> or got the Rebbe's way. And the man went home. And when he came home, he started to come back to himself. Like, almost he ruined his whole life. Um, and so he never told anybody that, that and they made the plans with this non-Jewish nurse to what they were planning on doing but somehow the Rebbe had a sense of it and person, you know, his marriage, his life was not completely destroyed by making a very stupid decision but the thing is how did they develop that kind of closeness because she was taking care of him on a day to day basis and compassion has a tendency to lead to love it's like actually a, a, like a common occurrence. Um, but can, in the right context, not be a negative thing. But in that context, it was very negative. Um, and the Rebbe kicked him out of the hospital. <laughs> he came home. Um, and I guess he woke up from that dreamlike state. Good? Okay, so I hope you have some kind of a, a sense of, kind of the whole picture of Tanya, more or less. Um, and it, it, it really, uh, one episode, it really does have a range. Tanya speaks about a person who, like, just maintaining an awareness that Hashem is real so that they're not sinning comes from a recognition that Hashem is real is itself for them like a life's work, all the way to a person who 